Be sure and take your bulletin home with you. On the very back are numerous meetings that take place the next couple of weeks around the Christmas season and actually gives us a little bit of a calendar of what's going to happen with winter grace and other things coming into the new year. So be aware of all those activities and participate as much as you can. Our scripture reading comes from the Word of God. We're studying the book of Daniel this fall. In this Advent season, we couldn't fall upon a more perfect passage to study the advent of Christ than this particular one here. It's in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who has come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Daniel has prayed, he's confessed his sin to the Lord, he's noted the sins of the people, or like him, in sackcloth and ashes, he's poured out his heart to God in true, genuine contrition and repentance, and asked the Lord to have mercy on the people. The answer to the prayer that he prayed for mercy is for God to bring to fruition the sure mercies of David. What God now is going to tell Daniel and communicate through the angel Gabriel is what is going to happen between that time that Daniel is living in and the time that the Messiah comes. And it's going to give him somewhat of a timetable. And so we're going to be dealing, when we look at this particular passage, which by the way, I won't hesitate to mention, is one of the most controversial and difficult passages anywhere in the scripture to really nail down and understand in an absolute fashion. And uh, one's hermeneutic, that is the way you interpret scripture, comes to bear when you come to it because you bring that bias with you. And I'll confess my bias right off the bat. Uh, I hold to the view that it was held by Augustine, Calvin, and numerous modern commentators and all the rest. Uh, There's nothing novel about it, it's ancient, it's solid, but we live in a time, and especially in a town, that has an enormous amount of influence from another school of thought about the 70 weeks of Daniel. And in our mind, those of us who were raised on the Schofield Bible and attended Schofield Bible Church are pretty apt to be uh, schooled in another line of interpretation. 
Today, I don't want to be, have this to be a polemic, and this is not a time to discuss it in great detail, but I will tell you it's worth an enormous amount of study to be able to work through this passage with good commentaries, especially those that look at the various nuances and the variations of all the Hebrew words. My, the one I use most is E.J. Young, Oswald Alice, some of the old great uh, men from Westminster Seminary of a previous generation have been very, very helpful to me. The Old Testament commentator who wrote in the face of all of the radical criticism of the 19th century and yet held to a very conservative and a high view of scripture was uh, Kyle of Kyle and Dalich. And, so the, and then the, in these books, there's listed enormous amounts of reference material. So that's all the lecture that I hope I give. I hope we can look at this passage, but what I'm going to say, every word I believe that comes out of my mouth, if I say it correctly, will be what I sincerely believe. It uh, doesn't mean that I'm going to be bulldogmatic about it and insist that everybody else is wrong. I just don't have time to, to do two things. One, to refute every error that I think is out there, and number two, to explain every reason why I believe what I believe. So take it in that spirit, and if you disagree, don't hate me. Just continue to do what the Bereans did, and that's search the Scriptures. I don't think this is a very difficult passage to interpret once you clear the fog of some of the ridiculous interpretations that have been given it uh, in the last uh, uh, 250 years. But if you clear the fog out there, you come to a pretty good uh, understanding of, of this passage. What this deals with is it deals with the time from the end of the Babylonian exile until the time of the coming of Christ. Those are the general time periods we're talking about. If you'll remember Jesus later on when so much of this had already been fulfilled and they were right in the midst of all of it being fulfilled, the disciples asked Jesus just prior to his ascension, said, uh, what's going to be the program here? Well, you're going to restore. And see, this whole passage is about restoration. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And he used two words in there for times and seasons. And I think most of you are familiar with these two Greek words. One is chronos, and the other one is kairos. Chronos time is time that is numbered in years. It's the turn of the calendar. It's easy to be pretty literal. The more you know of history, you more know the exact dates. If you were to look at this at, as uh, 70 weeks, and you were to think of the weeks as years, you'd come up with 490 years if you, if you looked at it that way. Uh, as, 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 as a chronos time. And by the way, this particular passage, even if you understand it the way I do, and that is that these, these are not literal years, 70 times 7 years, but the scripture, the word 7 is not, is not the word year, it's the word week, and it means sevens. There are 70 sevens. These are the increments of time, and they're divided into, into 7, and then 62, and then 1. And the real emphasis is upon that one week, that 70th week, that 70th seven, because in that period of time comes all the fulfillment that God has been promising since Genesis chapter 3 in terms of sending a Savior. Now, if, let me do, first of all, chronos time, and that'll give us kind of a sketch and an overview. I do not take it to be literal weeks, but we don't miss it too far. Because the whole idea, 70 years had been determined upon the people in captivity. 
And now God is giving them a program. It would, it would make sense that he wouldn't be too far off in terms of approximate time. He wouldn't be talking about a 10-year period when he was talking about a 1,000-year period. And neither would he be thinking about dividing them up and splitting them and putting a bit parenthesis and a gap between them. They would be sequential. And one would follow upon the other. So you have a seven sevens, 62 sevens, and one seven, a climactic eschatological seven, a one week, the 70th week of Daniel. But let's look at Kronos time. As we mentioned, it's the seven sevens is the time of the restoration. To, to get started with this particular uh, time, we need to look at the time when it starts. And the time starts pretty much at the order of Cyrus I, the Persian king, that's given and told, uh, we're told about it in Nehemiah. I'm sorry, in Ezra. In Ezra chapter 1, the first four verses, I think, give the, the date. So it's kind of easy to determine when the 77s start uh, as to their terminus a quo. That means the starting place. And then they continue sequentially and we come to a terminus ad quim. That is the ending place and the, the arrival. This is a decreed time. Notice the very first word. Seventy weeks are decreed upon your people. Look at the very last verse we looked at. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolation. This is the decree of God. This is the divine plan of God. This is what God has in mind historically for His people. And so He's telling us here in pretty good, close, approximate terms. Uh, it becomes ridiculous when people try to divide it out and find definite dates because absolutely no scheme fits. Every time you take it and measure it out with no matter what interpretation, you, there's always a remainder or there's a shortfall in literal 490 years. But it's not too far. It's just a little over 500 years if you look at it in Kronos time. And let me, let me sort of spell them out for you here at the beginning. Uh, the restoration time is the time when the decree by Cyrus is given and Ezra and Nehemiah begin their work. There's already been some return back to Jerusalem as the Babylonian uh, uh, captivity begins to come to an end. But there is a formal return in which it is decreed and they go back with the express purpose of, of rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the city. And this is the time of rebuilding. And it, it, it's, uh, if it's seven sevens or seven weeks, uh, it's, it's a period of 49 years, right? Well, it was pretty, pretty much that. It's kind of difficult to say exactly when the work of Ezra and Nehemiah was completed, but it was about a half a century of return. And the return was a, a restoration. It was to restore the people. It was to rebuild. And this is what they did in that period of time when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, going back down to the land of promise, back down to Jerusalem. Uh, they restored the priesthood, the Levitical line, in order to get a true understanding of who stood in the line of the high priest. And so they couldn't put together the genealogies. The people had been scattered. There's a tremendous amount of destruction that happened to the integrity of ethnic Israel through the diaspora that had occurred both in Syria and also in Babylon and some others that had occurred. So, but they still could hold together somewhat the priest. Some of the priests had come into Babylonian captivity. Some had remained back in the land. And, and they had to establish that. 
And that was one of the things it was important to establish was the priesthood. The leadership of the people was easy to establish because a remnant of Judah, the priestly tribe, the kingly tribe, had been taken into Babylonian captivity, and it was easier to trace that. In other words, what we're trying to restore is the priesthood and the royal line, the kingship. Because what's happening here? These people are going to be unto God in time a holy nation, a royal priesthood. A kingdom of priests. Not only that, their Messiah is going to be a priest, a true high priest that's going to do all of this incredible priestly ministry, but he is also at the same time a king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and when he returns, he will fulfill that role. So it's important that at least these two lineages be established, and that's what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah. They also rebuilt the wall. You're very familiar with the story of Nehemiah. Uh, building the wall, how they had to labor under great difficulty. The text says here that, that it'll be a, a hard job during this time of restoration because they'll be opposed with many enemies. At first they had some little local tribes that bothered them, and then over toward the end of the period of time they had this massive um, opposition and, uh, and defilement coming from Antiochus Epiphanes. And so this whole period of time in the rebuilding and then later, they rebuilt the moat or the trench and they rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the priest led the people in, in building the temple. And, uh, and uh, that was the, uh, the leadership of, uh, of Israel being restored, being rebuilt. Uh, the, the houses were rebuilt. In fact, um, the prophet um, laments that their houses had been built before they had actually built the temple. And he called that a disgrace to the people. But these two great emblems of God's righteous rule on earth, the priesthood and the kingdom, the, the lineage of the king, are being rebuilt and restored. Following that, we're still dealing now with chronos time, that is, weeks and, and years and, and physical measurements. We still have out our history book at this point. And, and these things, if you think of it this way, literally came to pass they were things that actually happened in uh, history. Then you have the, the sevens period, about 434 years. That, that would be the 62 period of time. This is the long, this is the majority of this long waiting period of, of a little over 500 years. You had, of course, Cyrus begin to rule. The Persians ruled. That was the, uh, the ram, you remember, in the previous vision that was given. And then following that, you had the conquest of the Persians by Alexander the Great. So that was the Greek conquest. That was the goat with the two horns. And then when the goat, uh, out of the goat came the four horns, which was out of Alexander the Great's uh, demise, uh, the, the uh, empire was split into four parts. And two of those parts related especially to Israel because one was in the north and one was in the south. The kingdom in the north was the, the kingdom of the Seleucidian dynasty. And that was the one that had Antiochus Epiphanes in it. The Syrian uh, sector and all the surrounding areas vexed Israel sorely, especially in the days of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes from the, the early 160s, about 170 down to 164, when he would traverse Israel and, and just vex the people something horribly with what he did, including defiling the temple, offering a sow upon the altar, desecrating the priesthood, and all sorts of things. And so this... Uh, this uh, uh, southern uh, group was the Ptolemies, the ones of Egypt that took two of the four 
uh, kingdoms that the Grecian Empire split into four, and these were the two that vexed Israel because they were right next to Israel. The other one was way over farther in the east, and the other was way on up into Greece and Macedonia area. So these two uh, sub-empires uh, vexed Israel during all this period of time, and there's quite a history there. Uh, the uh, the uh, Seleucid dynasty had oppressed the people and infuriated them so much that they rose up in rebellion under a priest and under a priestly family. And this you read about in the book of Maccabees where it talks about the Hasmanian dynasty with Matthias and John Hyrcanus and all of those people. Very interesting story of how God's people rose up and for a period of time there uh, in that uh, first century and a half BC, they enjoyed a certain amount of, of independence. And uh, they were... Um, they were ruled that during that period of time by the priestly family, the royal priestly family, which stayed in power all the way up until the times of Christ. In fact, when you get to the times of Christ, the second temple priesthood had been pretty well put in place. And when we read about the Sadducees and the high priest and the chief priest and, and the elders and all of these people in the New Testament, that's the descendants of this uh, Hasmanian group that had, that had ruled in Israel. And it, for the most part, it was a pretty good rule and a righteous rule, all things being considered. Then uh, the Roman conquest comes in with the exploits of Julius Caesar in the mid-last uh, of the century, the just uh, 60, 70 years before Christ. The Roman, the fourth empire, the empire of, of iron and clay, the empire that the stone would crush, that empire came to power. And that was the last of the great uh, human empires before the coming of God's crown prince. And that was the Roman conquest. And uh, it was during the Roman conquest then, just uh, basically uh, less than a century into the Roman conquest, which extended for another 400 years into A.D., but nevertheless the Roman Empire is the empire in which Christ came, into which God came in the flesh. And so when we have this, we have the birth and the life of the Messiah. We have the things the Messiah did during that piece. And now we're into the final week, the 70th week. And this is what the Messiah does. Chapter, verse 1 here of our, I mean the first verse of our passage is going to survey, which I'm going to do in just a moment, what that entailed. And it involved everything concerning the work of Christ, his ministry that we read about in the book of uh, in the in the Gospels, and then that early part of the period of what we would think of as the evangelistic period, the period of of Jewish belief and unbelief, which was very uh, acute. A good bit of the New Testament letters, especially Paul, deal with that cleavage between believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. Those who accepted Jesus Christ of Nazareth as their Messiah and, and, and uh, believed in Him and saw Him as their Savior and understood the kingdom of God in the terms in which now Christ has fulfilled it and is teaching about it, as opposed to unbelieving Israel, the people that did not believe Jesus was the Christ. The Bible calls Him here the people of the Prince. He came into His own, but His own received Him not. The very people of Christ, His very covenant people, were the ones that crucified Him, were the ones that rejected Him. 
and you have a period of 40 solid years from the crucifixion to 70 AD in which then God's final judgment, his final fulfillment of everything he promised to do came to fruition. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment, except to finish Kronos time, we've got to recognize that this period of Christ from the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death, resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and the judgment upon Israel in 70 AD, these great operations all are considered the last days. When you read the Old Testament, you, the Bible talks about a lot of things that Messiah will do, and he will do them all in the last days. So the last days encompass the life of Christ, the earthly ministry of Christ, everything that he did, and then Everything following that. Paul was living in the last days. Peter was living in the last days. St. John the Divine, when he received the revelation, which, which spelled things out in visions that really gave all kinds of contemporaneous understanding to what was happening. All of this is the last days, and the kingdom of God has come. That's what it looks like at this point in Kronos time. And when Christ comes, we find out something kind of interesting. He came to earth, but he didn't stay on earth in bodily form he ascended and when he ascended he rules and reigns having been crowned at his resurrection now the kingdom of God the operation of God the rule and reign of Christ the ruling and the reigning of the saints the establishment the building of the kingdom where in the church whereby the gates of hell that is the forces of death it will never die out it's an everlasting kingdom it continues through time and and my goodness, what kind of chronos time have we had since 70 A.D.? 2,000 years almost of chronos of time going by. But still in the last days. Still in the reign of Christ. Still in the days of preaching the gospel. That's why he told his disciples, you don't need to know the chronos nor the kairos. Let me tell you what you need to do. You need to be my witnesses. And that's exactly what the mandate upon us is right now, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are to be the witnesses. What we're doing now is we are filling the kingdom of God up with a population. We are populating it by the people that trust in Christ one by one by one by one over the centuries and across the globe. People are trusting in Christ and the kingdom of God, the seed of Abraham expanded to all those that are in Christ, now is coming to pass. And a great multitude, a multitude no one can number. In in fact, that's the number that fulfills the Abrahamic covenant that said you'll have descendants because we are now true believers in Christ, the true seed of Abraham, and we are that seed of Abraham as well, and we're heirs according to that promise. And that's what the kingdom of God looks like now. It's not what it'll look like because Christ tells us that he will have a return. The, the Old Testament speaks of the coming of Christ, the advent, period. But when Christ came and began to fulfill and bring about these things, we had an unfolding that the kingdom of God and the second, I mean, the, the, the advent has an unfolding process to it, just like the old theocratic kingdom had phases to it. There was the Abrahamic patriarch phase. There was the tribal phase. Then there was the Enfictiani phase, that is the time of the judges. Then there was the time of the kings. Then there was the time of the exile. Then there was the time of the restoration. And then comes the Christ. And so that's what we have here in Kronos time. And it is approximately 500 and some odd years, if you reckon it from the decree of Cyrus to the, to the fall and the destruction, the absolute destruction of, 
of Jerusalem and the temple, 70 AD. There's your Kronos time. Now let's take a moment and look at, at uh, Kairos time. Kairos time is that time that is considered uh, momentous. It's the time of the moment. It's an event. It's an opportunity. It's not reckoned in, in minutes or, or, or hours or days or years. It's reckoned in significance. It's reckoned in, in how important it is and what it accomplishes and how much it, how important it is, is. You know, in your life, you'll go along for two or three years and it'll be pretty routine. You'll get up every morning, you'll drink your coffee, you know, you'll read your Bible, you'll go to work, you'll, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, one, one year, there'll be an incredible thing happen. You know, there'll be mag, uh, great events in your life and you can peg your life by these events. Very few people, and certainly the nation of Israel, didn't have... A, a climactic year every year. They rocked along according to their seven cycles, their Sabbaths, their Jubilee years. They kept going. And by the way, Jubilee years is a way to think about those seven, uh, uh, 77s. And they, they come along in the time of the restoration, in the time of the anticipation, the time of expectation, hope, a time of waiting, a little bit of time of despair, a time of discouragement. There's just all kinds of times. And so that's what happens here in the in the 77. What happens uh, in this particular Choral's time, uh, Kairos time, is when, when uh, Christ comes, we have now reached the end of the 69 sevens, and we're now into the, seven, the 70th seven. Is anybody missing the significance of this word seven being used and the way it's used in Scripture? Sometimes quite literally and sometimes in terms of manifest per uh, perfection and, and order of that sort. Well, that's what, that's what we have here. This is when the 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, that is the, the, the temple and everything that it involves, and the holy city is the population, the people, and everything that's involved there. It says these are the decree, and the decree is to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Does any of that ring a bell as to what that means and how that might have happened and how that's been historically fulfilled? May I have a nod of heads? If you continue to nod, I know you're sleeping. This is the work of Christ profoundly expressed in very rich and meaningful terms. And it's conveniently Christ for us. And to, to just summarize six phrases that describe the work of Christ, and to, to just summarize, and this would be the place to preach the gospel, right here, because this, this all talks about Christ and Christ alone. The first three, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, has to do with Christ's work in dealing with the ultimate problem, the ultimate question on the face of humanity, and that is sin and death. Christ came in promise to a pair who had sinned in the garden. And the whole reason for the cross was that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees stand, and the reason for Calvary's tree is that tree that was in the garden where the pair, Adam and Eve, ate and sinned and surely died and brought death by sin 
And death reigned upon all men, for all have sinned. The universal problem of mankind is a sin problem. It's amazing to me how little we talk about that in the church when the whole reason the church is standing here is to talk all day long, every day, about sin and what its significance is and what its, what its consequences are. And so that is what Christ deals with in this, in this first particular group of, of, uh, of uh, statements. Then the, the second group is three as well. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the prophet and the vision, and to anoint a most holy one or a most holy place or a most holy thing. It is to, it, it, it's indefinite as to its object. So it, it's interesting. The application is multiple. And it can be, of course, multiple to anoint a most holy thing. Well, what we have here is just a delineation of the work of Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. The Lord said when he was here, he said, I am anointed. He quoted Isaiah 61 there in the synagogue in Capernaum and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he thought they had been released 500 years earlier. The good news to the captives. To the captives? I thought they had been released 500 years earlier. That's because we're all captive. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to our own passions. We're enslaved to our own thoughts. We're enslaved to our own biases. We're, we're enslaved to everything that is against what God has ordered for us to do. We must be freed. The lame must be made to walk. The deaf must be made to hear. The dumb speak. Sometimes the dumb speak when they're standing behind one of these, but, but that's, that's maybe a different understanding. That's the work of Christ. That's what he came to do. And these, these phrases here is to finish the transgression. That is to deal with sin. To take the whole notion of transgression. Remember several words had been used for sin, wickedness, iniquity in the, in the prayer of Daniel. These words are followed through here. The sin, the transgression, the iniquity. Something is going to be done to it. There has to be a transaction. There has to be a great work done to destroy the works of the devil and to destroy sin. And that's what Christ does. He comes then and dies upon a cross, suffers that awful death that we're very familiar with, that crucifixion death of the massive shedding of blood, the, the tortures, the privations, the hunger, the thirst, the being made a byword among the nations and being mocked and, and ridiculed and being stripped of his garments and just on and on you go. Sounds like those curses y'all read about a couple of weeks in the book of Deuteronomy, doesn't it? When you start looking at it. What did Christ do in His first coming? He bore the curse. He gave His life. He yielded up His life that He might be one who deals with our sin. And He deals with it biblically in a number of ways. One is He, he, he destroys it. He makes an end to it. Paul says in Romans 6 that Christ died not just for our sins, but Christ died to sin. The whole work of Christ is to undo sin and to purge it. And so His blood is a purging agent. And it is a, an atonement. It's a covering for sin. It makes sin go away. It's an expiation. It, it removes sin. It's a propitiation in that it, it appeases the God who has the wrath. The, the one who is bringing the case of condemnation against the sinner is satisfied in the death of Christ. So Christ comes and in so doing He bears the curse he bears the curse of the law in his own body he bears our sins in his own body on the tree 
And so he comes to, I, I love these phrases, to finish the trains. What did Christ say when he, when he finally was ready to die? He said, it is finished. And that word means several things. A war is won, an argument is completed, a transaction is settled, a debt is paid. All of that sin and guilt and all of that table of law that just stacks up against it. An infinite list of our wrongdoings, our failures, our rebellion against God, our, our, our pathologies and all of our wickedness, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. All of that is gathered together and in one great transaction before God Almighty hanging between heaven and earth. Jesus takes it all in his body and he bears the curse away. And when he does, he carries our sins and moves them as far as the east is from the west in the depths of the sea. They rem God remembers them against us no more. But then also, this phrase here talks about to begin an everlasting righteousness, to seal with the prophet in the vision and to anoint a most holy place. This is the, what Christ did here, on, stated in a positive way. And that is that he brings in everlasting righteousness. The Old Testament is filled. The Psalms are filled. Isaiah is filled. The whole Old Testament is filled about how there needs to be an era of justice and righteousness and rightness before God and upright living and sinful living and healthful living and wonderful living and eternal life and abundant life and Christ comes to bring all of that, to bring in everlasting righteousness. We actually are a new humanity. When Christ rose from the dead, he brought forth a new human being. And the life that he imparts to us by his spirit through regeneration and salvation makes us part of a new human creation. One that is fitted for eternity. Down here in this world with remaining sin, the world, the flesh, the devil, all the things around us that vex us, doesn't eradicate the reality that we are new creatures in Christ. And we're getting ready for the final phase of that great kingdom and that great blessing. The one we read about a little while ago in the Isaiah passage where the government will be upon his shoulders. He'll, take, he'll, he'll be our reigning king as well as our high priest. And that's what these things talk about. He seals the prophet in the vision. The seal means to put the authenticity on it, to put the seal of approval, to make it all happen. In, in Christ, all the prophecies of the Old Testament are yes and amen. They are, that's it. They're completed. They are all fulfilled in Christ. Everything you can think about in the Old Testament is fulfilled in one way or another in Christ. And then he bestows them as blessings upon his people. Blessings? Where does that come from? Same passage in Deuteronomy where the curses are. There's a long enumeration of the blessings. Health, happiness, wholeness, large families, fertile fields, wonderful life. Everything God intended in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and more. A new heaven, a new earth, a new creation. No tears, no sorrow, no dying, no suffering. On and on and on you can go and think about the blessings. And the final blessing is the blessing that you will live in the land forever, God told them. And that's eternal life. And that's where we'll live in the eternal state forever and ever and ever. And Christ brought that blessing in His resurrection, in His coming alive from the grave. And it, it's all sealed and certain because God said what? The word decreed. It's not just that God creed events along the, the, the timeline, but it is that God did great momentous work, a great transaction whereby you take, the, you, God gives to Christ your sin, and He gives to you Christ's righteousness. 
So it's a building in everlasting righteousness. It's a sealing of the prophets. It's to appoint a most holy place. We'll read, if you want to really understand these passages, read two passages. Read the prophetic passage in Isaiah, the fourth uh, servant song. Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53. That's what it talks about. Finishing the transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, making a covenant, confirming a covenant with His people, justifying, declaring righteous His people, and on and on and on. You see the prophetic view of this work of Christ. If you want to see it really hammered home and nailed down and said it's been done, the old system has passed away, it's been done, then you need to read uh, Hebrews chapter 6 through 10. And it tells you about the, the temple, how that Christ by His blood entered once for all into the true holy of holies and there made atonement for our sin. A high priest that lives forever a king who reigns forever with a people who are his and with him forever.